and you're listening to Thinking Off Piste, a podcast for adventurers. We share inspiring stories from professional mountaineers, skiers, boarders, bikers, climbers and hikers who have gone against the grain, abandoned their comfort zone and found success through their dare-to-be-different attitude. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Today I'm speaking with Tom Grant, a skier, climber and member of the International Federation of Mountain Guides Association. Tom has skied first descents all over the world and offers bespoke guiding packages for even the most advanced skiers and climbers. Tom has in-depth knowledge and insight into flow states and risk-taking in adverse conditions. So Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How have you been? Yeah, good thanks. Just uh, visiting at my parents' house in East Sussex at the moment, near Brighton. Oh, so you're like... spending a bit of time with the family here. Yeah. Amazing. Where, where are you? Well, we're in London, so not too far away. Um, yeah. Family home's not far away from Brighton too, which is funny. It's like a oh, nice. wintering, so it's nice wintering. to be by a seaside. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, we're down at the sea today. Awesome. Is it hot? Is, as yeah. in like, is it... Well, I guess it's quite warm outside, so is it nice? Yeah, it, it was just, it was a little cloudy and windy when we got there. It wasn't that it wasn't warm enough to stay in the water for more than thirty seconds, but it was yeah, it's it nice. Um, yeah, I mean so we're, we're in July. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where in London are you? So um, I'm in Hackney. So we're in Dalston at the moment in the studios. Um, you live in uh, Shawnee, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just a few more days here. We're flying back on Tuesday. Very nice. Cool. Yeah. How long have you been down yeah. for? Um, I've been here a couple weeks now. Oh, it's so nice to get away and actually finally be able to travel, isn't it? I know. Yeah, it's it's a little more. Yeah, still some complications, but it's getting better. Yeah, I, I need the second jab. Have first. you been abroad since no. uh, the pandemic? Or? No, but I've been looking at booking a holiday in now. I've, I'd um, we're looking at going over to Spain because I think um, that might be an okay one to travel to. So, yeah, crossed. nice. Yeah. So, Tom, you're a member of the International Federation of Mountain Guides Association and a member of the British Mountain Guides Association. What exactly does that mean? So the IFMJ, the International Federation of Mountain Guides Associations, it's, um, it's, it provides a qualification, which is the highest um, level of qualification in the mountains for guiding, mountaineering, rock climbing, uh, backcountry skiing, all sorts of uh, climbing and skiing in the mountains, basically. And it allows you to work in any country in the world um, with that. And there's 20, I think there's 24, 25 countries signed up. Wow, that's amazing. Um, usually there's quite a, um, a lot of discrepancy between um, what's recognized in one country as opposed to another, between maybe France and New Zealand and Canada. So the fact that you're at a certain level where that you can just work everywhere is phenomenal. Yeah, I guess, it's, I mean, it depends. I, I guess um, I should, yeah, I should say, well, it depends on the countries. Um, I mean, you can't just, depends on the rules in the country, but it's, it's, a, it's the same qualification is recognized at equal standard across the world. So um, each country has its own training program, but the idea is that training programs are set to uh, the same standard and that it gives you um, this is the same globally recognized qualification. Amazing. So can you walk me through what the training process was or how long that took? Yeah, so I, I qualified with the British Mountain Guide Association, and um, it took about took four or five years for me to decide that I wanted to do it to get all the 
um, requisite experience and put my, you have to put a long list of alpine climbing routes, rock climbing routes, uh, winter climbing routes in Scotland and ski touring and um, off-piece skiing experience, put it all together in application. So that took a bit of time, but uh, I was living in Chamonix and climbing skiing a lot. So I probably did it faster. Actually, it was more like three, three, four years it took me um, faster than maybe most people would be able to, because I just, I spent a lot of time climbing skiing at that point in my life. And so then it's um, three to three and a half years minimum once you're on the scheme to pass all the training and assessment courses. Some of those are run, since it's uh, the British um, Association running it, some of those are in North Wales and Scotland. And uh, obviously a lot are in the Alps because we don't have Alpine mountains in the UK. But the Scottish winter element is pretty cool because it's such a harsh, gnarly environment. And it really teaches you a lot about how to how to navigate, how to guide in tricky conditions about mixed climbing and ice climbing. And that's so interesting. So, so we have a block of time, which is spent there. Yeah. And what, what was the toughest part of the training? Would you say? Uh, it depends. I mean, everybody's got their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, you know, I, I was based in the Alps before, so I'd been spending a lot of time skiing and alpine climbing. So I was more confident in those areas. And then I had to go back, spend more time actually living in the UK to, to boost my experience in UK trad climbing and, and Scottish winter climbing. I think the the first course in North Wales was the toughest for me because it's just the first assessment. I mean, the first time that you're assessed, you don't quite know what to expect, what standard they're looking for. It's all pretty nerve wracking and new and just having to guide people. And, you know, cause you, you're with uh, mock clients who are actually the real clients of, of assessors uh, for the assessments. So you're having to guide and instruct them. And when it's that new, it's, it's definitely, you know, you get to grips with it over, over a few years. But uh, I think the first assessment is definitely the hardest for me. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what you were training in was very physically demanding. And you were also training in a lot of different sports disciplines simultaneously. Can you give me an idea as to the range of sports you were doing at the time? So um, it varies a little bit country to country, depending on the, those countries' traditions. Um, but for the UK, there, there is, there's, there's a, quite a lot of similarity. And the, that's the role of the IFMGA is to make it standardized to some extent. But for example, in Norway, they have uh, like an Arctic um, Nordic ski traverse where they pull sleds across Arctic terrain, which we don't have as in wow. the British Association. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. That's um, cool. But yeah. So it's for, for us, it's really trad climbing, um, traditional cl- rock climbing, which is where you climb up a, a multi-pitch rock route, um, placing your own gear and having to manage, you know, not with not like sport climbing where the, the bolts are already there. Um, and so alpine climbing, all, all types of alpine climbing, rock, uh, mixed ridges, snow, ice, um, you know, bigger routes, shorter routes, uh, all the classic 4,000 meter peaks. Um, and then they expect you to see a few tougher, harder routes in your resume, things like, um, you know, some of the classic North faces that, that are either a long day or a multi-day route to climb that are quite committing. Um, and then, so ski tour in terms of skiing, multi-day ski tours and off-piece skiing from the lifts, um, kind of a bit, bit of both. And, and just generally a lot of ski mountaineering experience and then Scottish winter climbing experience where, yeah, you need to have, have a, a fair bit of that under your belt. Um, and then uh, otherwise scrambling, navigating. How many routes are we talking about? Um, do you need to have on your resume? Uh, Alpine climbing, probably, I think they ask for 20 or 30 minimum of, you know, and, and those should be quite substantial routes. Um, probably more than that. I, I, I can't exactly remember, but it's, it's five to 10 
uh, big routes that are that are quite long and serious as a minimum anyway. And in Scotland, a minimum of 50 routes. And for trad climbing throughout the UK, a minimum of 50 routes uh, at, a, at a certain grade. Yeah. Super high intensity. What's your What's yeah. your favorite sort of discipline across all of them? I'd have to be skiing. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, but I love rock climbing too, and alpine Good. climbing. That kind of works yeah. for like the winter months and the summer months. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so you're a skier, you're an alpinist, an all round climber, and you mentioned that these this allows you to sort of guide worldwide in all mountain disciplines. What mountain ranges have you like guided in? Mainly the Alps, but um, Norway as well, and a little bit in the US too. Do you prefer working in Chamonix or in France versus working in other mountain areas? Does it make a huge difference to you whether you're on sort of your home turf in terms of your knowledge and like your confidence in the area or how does that dynamic play out for you? Yeah, it does. Um, and of course, I know the mountains around Chamonix better than other areas, although I've come to know parts, other parts of the Alps pretty well now. For sure, it's, you know, I think it's it's a balance between you can't guide long new routes you've never done all the time and just be too tiring and stressful. But at the same time, you can't keep doing the easy local things that you know quite well because it wouldn't provide any sort of new challenge or stimulation. Or So it's, it's, nice, it's nice to balance. During my work schedule, I like to do a bit of both where, you know, I'll maybe go to a new area or do a new route and really have to think hard about it, work hard, have to do a little research and really be on my A game. And then sometimes you just need those days where you can kind of have half switch off and do something that you can just go through the routines of, of maybe, you know, the great thing about Chamonix is that there's a lot of really cool accessible routes that are really close to the lifts. So you don't have to hike miles, uh, you know, or have a big multi-day mission where you're carrying heavy back backpack around and, and going somewhere remote. You can just do a quick technical route close to lifts and be back, back home for like early mid afternoon and then just sleep in your own bed, which yeah. is nice. Awesome. And what's your favorite place to ski outside of Chamonix? Um, hmm. I've had a couple really cool trips to New Zealand and I, I really like the mountains there because there, there's some beautiful big mountains that are like the Alps in their scale, but they're a bit wilder and, and with less people around. There's just, the access isn't very good, but if you, if you go there, I've had really good luck with conditions and weather and, and lines that we've skied both trips. So I think the, the New Zealand Alps are, are pretty awesome. And then it's, it's such a nice country to be in as well. Yeah, that's actually one I've never been to before, but I would love to go. I do love Chamonix though. You have Mont Blanc sort of towering over um, the like village, which is spectacular. It's so pretty. Yeah, as for a resort. sure. It's hard to beat it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how long have you been in there for? For um, a little over 11 years now. Wow, like, amazing. Yeah, I'm coming up to 12 years in a way. So first move there, I just was, lived, just um, came summer of 2009, just to just was climbing and camping and just kind of found random people to climb with and, and pitch a tent in the woods where I could camp for free and, and yeah, spent awesome. <laughs> six weeks just have an adventure. That's so good. So yeah, so t tell me about your year. Obviously you can ski for six months of it, but then... Uh, the other side over summer is that when you would be climbing for example or how do you break up your year yeah so the ski season can last i mean you know the good thing about chamonix is the amazing access we have with the lift uh with aqua du midi and skyway which are i think the best lifts in the world and they take you straight into the high mountains so actually depending on conditions you can get good skiing october november 
Um, and even sometimes in the spring, you know, the, or the early summer season, June, July, but I'd say typically it's November to early June is, is you could say it's a pretty long ski season, depending on what your focus is and how much yeah. higher up ski mountaineering you want to do later. So then I'll start trying to get into rock climbing shape in the springtime. Um, but I'll still focus mainly on skiing and then climb as much as I can over the summer. But summer is my busiest period for guiding as well, where I do a lot of, lot of alpine mountaineering with my clients. So then it's between that and climbing, I'll do a bit of climbing them too, but I try to combine my guiding work with my own rock climbing in the summer and then try to hit my best rock climbing form in the autumn when I go away to the U S usually every year. And, um, cause I've got a son who's eight who lives over in the U S with his mom. And then he spends part of the year with me in Chamonix too. So I've just had him for six weeks over the summer. That's that so time's nice. coming to an end. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good to be able to go see him though, especially since yeah. all the restrictions with COVID. Um, for sure. My, I've got a half sister in Canada. It's been years since I've oh, seen nice. her now, which is actually really sad. Oh, yeah. But I'm yeah. so excited to see her back end of this year. So nice. hopefully book that soon now. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah. So then I, I, I do some rock climbing in the US desert and out west every year, which is it's got some of the best rock climbing. The on desert. The have a bit of a road trip. Yeah. In the Utah desert. What's it like climbing in a desert? Uh, really Super cool. Hot. It's. Well, it's the autumn can be quite cold, actually. So I go there in October, November, and it's sometimes really freezing at night and can be in the sun. It's nice, but so, but mostly it's almost, you know, you need to climb in the sun. Otherwise, it can be a bit too cold by the autumn because the desert there is, is quite high elevation. That's crazy. I've only stayed in a desert once, which was in Marrakesh. But I remember there being some insane sandstorms through the night, um, which was like an, it was like a blizzard out there. Have you climbed through conditions like that before? Um, not a desert blizzard. Yeah. <laughs> not a sandstorm. Just, no. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Can, in, in Marrakesh, yeah, I can imagine it would yeah. get pretty, pretty bad there. It's, there's a blizzard or sand yeah. blowing around. So let's talk a bit more about your skiing. What's the most extreme terrain you've ever skied on, would you say? I mean, Chamonix got the most accessible extreme terrain. So I think it's easy to spend a lot of time skiing on extremes. Which is quite nice to have the variation um, at around, home. Around Chamonix and the Mont Blanc Massif. Yeah, for sure. What's well, accessibility that, that is really different from other areas in the world. So um, the lifts are take you up so high and you have some of the steepest, uh, most extreme descents that you can, you can find really anywhere that are quite accessible from the lifts. So you can get a lot. So I've done, you know, in terms of volume of, of steep skiing, most of that's been around the Mont Blanc Massif. Um, but the biggest line I've ever skied was in New Zealand. What was that one? Uh, the Caroline face on Mount Cook, which, um, is this huge face set that was unskied, but kind of people knew about it. And it was a bit on the radar of, um, some other teams that tried to ski it before, uh, but it's quite famous in New Zealand cause it's just so huge. It's like 1800 meters from the bottom to the top. And it was, a, it had a few well-documented attempts, um, and it's quite a skewable line, but the conditions on the face change have changed a lot with this. The ice on the face has changed throughout the years and Ceracs have changed. Um, so that was the biggest, most committing line that I've ever skied and, and the biggest first descent that I've done. Amazing. Did you know that you always wanted to tackle it? Um, yeah, I'd heard about it for a while and it kind of been on the radar, but yeah, I, I you know, I had it necessarily planned as one of those you know it's it's such a for everything to line up for something like that to come off 
the probability is quite low. Really? So I don't think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just for the conditions, um, you know, having the right weather, snow conditions, having the right team, having the, t- you know, the, being there at the right time, having the right level of uh, motivation, feeling confident enough, um, having the right tactics and the fitness and just, just being in the right place at the right time and the right people, I think. And, and luckily um, we, all of that came together, which, you know, at the time when we skied, it's kind of like, well, that was amazing, but you know, what's next? Yeah. And I think looking back <laughs> on it, I realized how it's actually quite hard for all those things to line up. So I don't really have a bucket list per se yeah, of things yeah. to do. It's more trying to gauge what could be a good adventure and what my level of motivation and risk tolerance is at the time. And then who, who I've got available to go somewhere with. So it took two trips to my first trip. We just looked at it and didn't really have, have the necessary motivation or guts to, or, or idea of how to ski it. And then the second time we went, it all lined up. So it took a, couple trips of looking at it and because at the end of the day you could end up going there and the conditions could be perfect but maybe you're alone and it's the wrong time of day to do the run and actually the risk factor is quite high and you could have the polar opposite you could be with the right group of people and you could be there at the right time of day but you know the the weather just all of the conditions are too unstable when really it's all about it all coming together in equal measure and you can't really gauge it on just a few small like components yeah for sure yeah a lot of things have to come together and then and then you just have to accept that you're taking a step into the unknown and you have to accept a certain amount of risk on on something like that yeah for sure um i noticed uh actually on your website that you offer multi-day ski touring packages and one of those was the notorious halt route which um we had a guest on our podcast called aaron rolf who did the journey Uh, there he's a friend of mine yeah so actually i think he made the introduction didn't he yeah that's right um, and I was really keen to hear about what the package you offer there um, sort of entailed. Like, how long does that route usually take? It takes, um, well, Aaron did it in, in a single push, which is impressive. Yeah. Uh, for most people, though, that's, that's not going to be too doable. I think he did it 31 hours. Um, yeah, the men's world record is, is insane. I mean, Aaron's really strong and determined, but we're t- you can't compare him to a professional um, Olympic, yeah. you know, someone who's on Olympic level of fitness, who's a full-time schema racer, because it's been done in like 16 hours, I think. Wow. And like, how do you, um, people like stay overnight? Do they book accommodation or camp or how do they do that? Uh, th- well, there's the good thing about the Alps is that there's a great network of huts in the high mountains. So um, you stay in stay in mountain huts that are in, and during the spring touring season, they have a guardian there. So there'll be a team at the hut who can feed you. You know, you have uh, a bunk room. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty nice. And that's a great thing about the Alps is that the infrastructure is so good that way. So it takes I mean, most people, it's going to be five to seven days uh, to do it. And yeah. that's typically what, what I would expect when, you know, for guiding it. And it's an amazing journey across um, the high mountains. It's not the steepest or, you know, it's not got the gnarly skiing, but you're, you're in, you're on huge glaciers, amazing high mountain terrain. And it's, it's, um, it's really classic for a reason going between, you know, the, the two capitals of the Alps, really Chamonix and Zermatt. Awesome. So Tom, I also wanted to talk to you about some of your personal skiing adventures, um, because you've completed an array of sort of first, rare or extreme descents, which is super impressive. Can you tell me what first descents you've skied before? Yeah. So there's been, um, a few in, in the Alps, um, in Norway, in Canada and New Zealand, um, and yeah, in, in British Columbia and Baffin Island in, in the Canadian Arctic. And 
it, it really depends on, you know, where you go. You can, you can go to, um, lesser traveled mountain ranges and, and quite easily find first ascents or, or whereas in the Alps, um, it's much, much harder. A lot of all the obvious, uh, big lines have already been skied. Uh, but it's, it's definitely, yeah, you have to be motivated and have to know, know how to look at the mountains. And what exactly constitutes a first descent? Is it literally nobody in the world has been there before, uh, or like taking the line down? Like what's the definition of one? Yeah. So, um, well, yeah, no, nobody's descended it. Uh, and you can have a first ski descent or first snowboard descent, but, um, I mean, I don't know. To, to me, it's, it's not much of a difference if somebody's done it on ski or snowboard, I guess what, what the more notable thing would be just if it's, if it's done at all, cause there's always an element of, you know, is it, how is allowing it to work? Is it, how, how are we going to get good conditions? Is it really feasible? Um, and I think when someone's done it and then they, you know, they these days it's going to be all over social media. There's a certain amount of, you know, maybe miss air of air of mystique or, un, or, you know, factor of the unknown that can be taken away. And then it makes it easier for other people to go and do, do it too. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like the, the very nature of it is like setting foot somewhere on this planet where nobody else has done before. Like generally on the ground, we walk on thousands of us occupy that space every day. It's such like a, a, a liberating and rewarding experience. And then along with it also comes the challenge, like literally everything you've just listed off. How does it feel to ski a first ascent? Yeah. I mean, it's for sure. It, it can be pretty exciting um, depending on, on, you know, how exciting depends on the line. Um, the danger factor. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. For sure. Um, I guess it's always, you know, having something that's a bit, and it's whether, how unknown it is, you know, there's two main ways to ski a steep line, um, either on site where you climb up a different route around the back to ski it, or you, you hike up, um, or you, you know, you climb up using ice axes and crampons, a line that you want to ski. So how, you know, much of a, of a risk or a step into the unknown can depend on a lot of factors. And, and there's ways to manage it either by deciding to climb the line or by skiing it, um, what we call on site from, from having climbed up a different way. But yeah, it's, you know, and it depends. I don't necessarily just go um, seek out first sense for the sake of it. Cause what motivates me more is to ski you know, the, the most beautiful and, and best looking lines that really motivate me. And so what kinds of things would you consider if you were asked to plan an itinerary by somebody um, for a bespoke, like first ascent trip? Well, we'd have to go somewhere where um, there haven't, hasn't been much ski activity before, which for in terms of a guided trip, there's definitely places I know it's possible in Greenland, probably in, in places like Kyrgyzstan or um, interior British Columbia, maybe. But it's, you know, when there's definitely a difference, the skiing that I've, I, I've done on my own, some of it's certainly been quite risky and, and, you know, you're with, um, uh, equal ski partners who you completely trust. Um, and so in that scenario, you know, it's, it's, it's completely, it's completely different mindset and approach from taking clients okay. there on, on a yeah. guided trip. Um, so I, I've never skied a first ascent with a client before, but you have to be in the right place where there's a lot of terrain that's never been skied because, um, to accept that amount of risk and, and, you know, to really, to push the limits with, with a client is not something that I would, I would necessarily do in most places I've been to. Yeah. And actually, is that something you'd ever feel comfortable with at the end of the day? Because your first responsibility is also their safety and like, you, and you need to know their ability so well, wouldn't it'd be different to do it with a group of friends that 
you know all about the same ability, if you know what I mean. I don't know if that makes sense. For sure. Yeah, no, it, it's a big difference and it's, it's a completely different approach. And as when I'm guiding, I'm, you know, my, um, their, their lives are in my hand, my clients. And, and I have done some quite steep descents with clients around the Alps, but they have to, I have to really trust them and know them well. And even then I've, the, the risk assessment has to be more conservative. So you mentioned Baffin Island, which I thought was quite interesting because uh, the producers of our podcast, Maybe Ski, offer trips to sort of Baffin Island, Norway, BC and Canada and New Zealand. Um, and I know they, they also offer oh, yeah. like um, heli ski first ascents in Baffin Island too. So we've been to, um, we flew into Clyde River, which is on the East Coast and to where the biggest fjords are. So uh, around like Sam Ford uh, Fjord and the Walker Arm where there's amazing cool. So, so the, the cool skiing there is, is some of the best on the planet and some of the longest. So it might've been a slightly different area to where they went. Um, some of the cool are quite steep and, and fairly extreme and, and a lot of them aren't, but they're all like sustained 40 to 50 degrees. Um, amazing. So they, they split these huge rock faces. So in, in the area where we're in, in the fjords, some of the, the, the biggest granite walls on, on earth that are like, 1500 meters high, you know, bigger than El Cap and Yosemite. Wow. Um, and so you have these beautiful ribbons of snow and these kuas that are somehow cut into the rock faces and they, they're, they're, you know, anywhere between 800 meters and 1500 meters in, in vertical descent. And you do, you end up on this, on the sea ice in the fjord and it's, it's really cool. And it's definitely like nowhere else I've ever skied. It's, it's this really unique uh, environment that's Sounds amazing. What kind of um, wildlife do you see in a situation or like an environment like that? We saw, um, didn't see a huge amount of wildlife. We saw an Arctic fox, um, might've caught sight of some caribou, but the main risk out there are polar bears. Yeah. And there are bears around. So when we were camping out on the sea ice, we, we had to take some guns with us and um, we had an alarm that we set up around the camp perimeter and and a shotgun and a hunting rifle. Gosh, but you didn't Um, have an encounter, did you? We didn't, but there was one time where we were up a Kua and we were only gone for two or three hours and we left some gear at the bottom of the line with and our guns and and a few extra bits of, of kit. When we came back down from having skied it, and we weren't gone that long, there were a load of fresh uh, bear tracks that were circling around our gear that we'd left. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> maybe sniffing at it and checking it out. Yeah. Gosh, good thing I didn't set up any of the like traps or alarms or anything. But oh my God, that was so close at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. They also have whales, like the blue, the bluer whales out there, but I'm not sure how dangerous they are. But yeah, no, it's, it's always good to hear a good yeah. wildlife story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's really cool there. And there's actually one other trip I really wanted to ask you in particular, which was the Denali Mountain in central Alaska. Yeah. I don't know if I've pronounced that right. I think I have. Um, yeah, the central Alaska range, uh, you'd say. But yeah, Denali, exactly. Can I ask what inspired you to go on this trip? Yeah. Well, Alaska has got some of the coolest mountains uh, in the world, and it's such a huge wilderness area. So it's skiing, you know, the big um, famous mountains there is a big attraction, but there's so many places you can go in Alaska. There's a, you know, endless lifetimes of exploration and, and big mountains to, to go there from, you know, all the, the spines you see around the more coastal ranges that are a bit lower elevation that you see in a lot of ski movies to then the bigger, higher altitude stuff around the central Alaska range. Um, so we, we had an idea to try to ski the south face of Denali, which is one of the biggest alpine faces on the planet. That's about 
almost um, 3,000 meters wow. high the face. Um, and turned out the weather is a bit, the weather wasn't very good when we were there. We didn't have a stable enough, long enough window. And it was our first trip there. I don't think our tactics were exactly right. And it was, it was so big and committing that, um, you know, not sure that I would have wanted to commit to doing that anyway, but that was our plan. It's a pretty harsh, and harsh, cold environment, isn't it? Um, the yeah, conditions there. It is for sure. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's probably the coldest place I've, I've been. It was colder than when I was in Baffin. Fair enough. Because um, wow. we were there at the start of May and, and then we went higher up on Denali. It was really cold sometimes, like, uh, yeah, more lo- below minus 30 at night, like <laughs> minus do. 35 I maybe. Um, Gosh, how do you camp in conditions like that? That's freezing. W- were you camping yeah, when you were there? We were, yeah. Yeah, you don't have a choice. There's no, no hotel you can check into. <laughs> How long did you go for? Oh, so you said you went in two bouts, didn't you? In two trips. Uh, one one trip, but we we ah. we skied um a few different lines there, but we were mainly up on Denali itself, which is the highest mountain in in Alaska, in the Central Alaska Range, um, the highest in North America. So it's six thousand two hundred meters, and you have to take several days just to get um to the point where you can get to a high camp up the mountain to tackle the summit. Um, and that, that was cool. Cause it was the highest I've been in altitude as well. Oh, wow. Oh, that must be such a liberating feeling though, going from the summit as well. How high up were you at that point? Uh, so the summit 6,200 meters. Amazing. Um, did yeah. You, did you feel the uh, effects of the altitude at all? Yeah, I, I definitely did. Um, but I was pretty happy with how I felt at that height. And they, people say that Denali feels higher um, than 6,000 meters because it's so far north. So actually, a six, the same altitude closer to the equator is easier to cope with because the atmosphere is um, thicker closer to the equator and the atmosphere actually thins to the, closer to the poles. So the further you go to the, the closer you go to the poles, the relative, um, the, say, the altitude gets, um, the, there's less air to breathe at the same altitude. Oh, that's really interesting. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Um, how were you able to sort of cook in those conditions as well? Did you have to bring like a portable everything? I guess you don't have any stopping points, do you? No. So you have to take everything up. So you, well, you fly in on a ski plane to the, to the, there's a landing strip on the glacier there. Cause wow. there's, there's a lot of people that, that go up there. It's a pretty popular place to go mountaineering and skiing. Um, and then from there, you got to hike up the mountain where we skinned up with uh, sleds that we pulled that were loaded with supplies um, so you have to take a good stove, uh, a nice, a good petrol stove that can work in cold temperatures. And a lot of going on a trip like that is just being able to look after yourself and survive in, in a harsh environment. And you just, you know, camping and cooking skills and knowing what you need gear wise, not to freeze and, and to be happy and healthy enough, even though it's, it just get a bit brutal and cold sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And whilst you're on that trip, you track, tra- you tackled the, West Face, and I can never pronounce the name, but is it the Kalinthan Queen? Um, Kahiltna Queen. That's the one. What's it called? Kahiltna. Uh, Kahiltna. Okay, Kahiltna, the Kahiltna Queen. Um, and you experienced a small avalanche up there. Um, can you sort of describe what happened on that day in the build-up to the sort of mini avalanche? 
Yeah. So it's a beautiful line uh, that we talked about trying and our trip was coming close to an end. So we'd skied from the summit of Denali down one of the classic steep lines already the Mestner Kua. And we're back in base camp on the Cahilna Glacier. Mm. And I think it's one of the best uh, steep lines in the area. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful lines that I've ever skied. Um, so we, we climbed up there. I was with, uh, yeah, there with two friends. I was, I was out there with Jesper and Enrico and everything was going pretty well. The conditions felt good. The snow felt stable. We got to the top and ski the most technical exposed section of the top, which was one of the most um, beautiful and exposed lines I've ever skied, like 55 degrees with these little spines over huge cliffs. And it was, it was pretty full on, but we were feeling good and confident. Yeah. And we, we successfully skied through it without needing to make an abseil. And then we got to the easier part of the line and there was just a small buildup of snow at the side of the steep, steep Kua. And Jesper came in and, and skied into it a little bit fast. And it was just quite unlucky that there was this very small pocket of, of unstable snow that, that popped out. And when you're on such a steep line, um, as soon as something pushes you off your skis and you start to fall, you accelerate within you know less than a second. You, you accelerate really fast on, on 50 degree plus terrain. So he was down five, 600 meters of the line in, in a matter of seconds. Such a terrifying thing to happen. Do you think yeah. that it's obviously one of the like, it's one of the biggest and steepest lines in the world that that like particular range. Do you think the challenge does it like does it do justice to its reputation? Uh, in the in the Central Alaska range in particular. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's. Um... Did you feel challenged like going down it, or like did it tick the boxes of? A technical ski for you? Yeah, definitely. So the Cahill McQueen was was a, was definitely tick the boxes. Of, it was very technical, uh, very steep and ex- exposed, and required all of our steep skiing expertise that we'd taken from the Alps. Going up the top of Denali was more of a cold, tiring slog to deal with <laughs> altitude. Yeah, okay. And that was a different challenge. But both both were both. I mean, it's a shame that Jesper had that accident because otherwise, I think the trip would have been for me, you know, really successful. And it was successful, and he's he's fine now. But it was certainly a close call and, and not a nice experience for for him. Totally. And what was going through your head as you saw that in front of you? Because you saw him fall, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, just you know, trying to not to panic and to and to think um, exactly what I needed to do, and and I just I was I had a really bad feeling that he was uh, either dead or in a bad way. Yeah. And as soon as I saw him, I started skiing. Well, I set off my my the emergency SOS button on my inReach, which sends a signal to a team that then can alert the the park rescue team. Um, so that, that all worked well. I was, I was impressed with inReach service. Um, and then I, I, just, I was pretty stressed, but I skied down him as quickly as I safely could. And as soon as I saw him moving on the debris, um, he'd gone over some 20 meter cliffs, but luckily there weren't any bigger cliffs. And I was, when I saw him moving, I was really relieved because I knew that he was, he was going to be okay. And then yeah. I saw that there weren't any life, life-threatening injuries. What was the extent of his injuries? Uh, broken neck and broken ribs. That's horrible. It just makes you think that at the end of the day, you can have your wits about you and a strong knowledge of the mountains, but the weather can affect the conditions so quickly and catch you off guard. And sometimes it just comes down to bad luck. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, um, you know, like as someone who's skied in steep terrain a lot, we like to think that knowledge and skill can, can alleviate a lot of the risk and it can some of it, but there's, there's, there's for sure luck as well. And, and that's, 
a hard thing to accept. I think that you can get lucky or unlucky and, and it's, it's the, it's definitely the dark side of, of serious skiing is that you will have friends die and you will have close shaves. And I think that, you know, at some point you just have to be careful how you manage the risk yourself in terms of your long-term aggregated exposure to it. You can't be pushing it all the time. You have to be very strategic and about when you want to push it. And I think that's what I've learned more and more kind of at first, you know, when I started skiing serious lines, I was, I was saying, wow, you know, I really want to prove myself that I can do this. I want to test myself. I want to push myself. I want to become good at it. And then you get through that phase. And then it's like, okay, well, I see it's risky now. And I see that people have died doing this, but maybe I can, I can mitigate the risk through skill and experience. And then you build up a uh, skill and experience. And then you realize that, well, even, even that helps. Um, it certainly helps. You have to be as, as aware as you can, as, as self-aware of what you're doing, but then um, you have to accept as well that there's just some un, unpredict. There's a very unpredictable element to it, and skiing is the knowledge is it's more like playing a game of of poker than a game of chess. You don't have all the information available to you, no matter no matter how smart you are. Yeah, you attempt such big lines, which you can only do due to your level of mastery and your craft. What's one key piece of advice that you've learned over time with regards to your work that you wish more people knew? Good question. Um, Sorry. I'd say, <laughs> no, that's, that's a great question. But um, I think you have to, I, I just think you have to be um, aware, aware of the risks and, and aware of, and, and try to be as aware of your motivations as possible that, you know, you can have the most amazing experiences, most intense and rewarding experiences of your life. But there, there is there is a lot of risk, and you have to just build it up step by step, and try to build up your experience, and then just try to develop um, uh, as much awareness as you can of how to operate in, in dangerous environments. Just you know, don't don't go in too quickly, but really build up a skill set step by step. And I think you know, there's skiing big lines, there's the skiing element, and there's the mountaineering element. And I'd say becoming a good mountaineer and, and climbing throughout the whole year on alpine terrain gives you a lot of um, a big degree of of uh, a much bigger safety margin and, and it, it teaches you how to approach lines so you can't just be a skier but you can't just be a mountaineer you have to really combine both and if you want to um, ski some of the best and, and biggest lines on the planet in in extreme situations you have to develop yourself both as a good skier and as a good mountaineer completely agree with that um, so I've lost count of the amount of times I've been, say, in one valley and needed to cross over to another valley, but I've sort of skied down and I've missed my last lift. So, for example, if you were to say to cross over from Courchevel to Maribel or Maribel to Val Turenne, for example, um, and you have to ski down further in the hope that maybe you land yourself in a town, you can find a bus or you have to pay a fortune for a cab. But the risk is never that dangerous because there's a tourist or even a local who hangs around sort of the peace, the peace map area, you know that you'll find your way into a town. But with the work that you do, it takes you to some sort of really remote and uncharted territories. And you have to rely so heavily on your awareness and your navigation skills. Have you, have you ever had sort of a route finding error that's led you to quite a tricky situation? <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. No, definitely. Um, sometimes, yeah, you know, you can get stuck in, in a whiteout in the wrong place. If you're on a big glacier, it's pretty bad to be stuck in bad weather because it's quite featureless. Um, yeah, you know, one time I was stuck, uh, in a whiteout on a glacier, just skiing down the Valley Blanche, which is a super, um, 
you know, easy, easy, accessible off piece run. I thought I was going to maybe have to dig a snow hole and spend the night there just because I couldn't, I couldn't safely see where I was going. Oh my goodness. Is, that would be terrifying. <laughs> you had to do that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and you know, then you, you kind of learn that, okay, worst case, you just have to like, you know, maybe you have to, I've spent the night in some pretty uncomfortable places that I haven't wanted to sleep, but you learn that you're going to suffer and it's going to be unpleasant, but that you're going to be okay at the end of the day, as long as you don't keep on pushing ahead and keep in. I think where it gets dangerous is if you make a bad decision and you keep on, you kind of, it gets compounded by making more bad decisions and you end up in a more, even a more dangerous, you know, if you just kind of forge on ahead without sometimes just stopping and, and realizing you might have to sleep in a really shitty spot. Thinking again, you know, I definitely, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I've taken for sure more risk, uh, when I've been doing things with, with mates, but one of the things you learn, you know, is, is how to get out of these situations and how to navigate or, or, you know, how not to get in the, yourself in those situations in the first place. So the more experience you get, the more you can avoid those situations. Um, I guess like it would be horrible to try and push through and push through. And I guess you might hear horror stories about this. Um, sometimes from people on the mountains who perhaps didn't like make the mental note. Now's the time to dig or like, uh, a hole to like sleep in or so forth. Um, and then they end up just running out of energy or freezing of hypothermia and so forth. So actually it's that knowledge of when to call it versus no, I'm just going to keep trying. Um, which is quite pivotal. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's been a lot of, um, yeah, tragic mishaps with people either. Well, you know, maybe in an exposed place and, and not knowing how to get home safely and just, just, staying put and then freezing to death overnight or just forging ahead. And, and, you know, especially if you're in the high mountains on a glacier, that can be, can be quite bad. So for sure, you have to have, you have to have, you know, a backup plan in mind as well. And whether that's, you have the right maps loaded onto your phone or you have a satellite messaging device, or you have a radio or you have, you know, a map and a compass as well, or an emergency shelter, you got to have some sort of backup um, that you can call on and that you know how to use as well. Yeah, that's so true. On your website, you talked about flow states, and I thought the concept of this was really interesting. Can you describe what flow states are to me? So it's when you're able to perform uh, a sport or activity at your absolute best because um, you, you enter kind of a, a peak state of performance where the way that your brain operates changes slightly. And you're just, I think we've all experienced it where you, when you're doing something, you're so focused and you're in the zone and everything seems quite easy and you're able to just, you know, what, whatever it is, if it's a sport, you're performing your absolute best and you're kind of accessing a level that maybe you didn't, weren't quite sure you could access, or you're just, you know, slightly better, performing slightly better than you were, um, in the past without, without the stress of, you know, without being inhibited by some sort of stress or performance anxiety. So it's like you're being in the zone basically. Um, yeah, that's really yeah, cool. Exactly. Well, the thing about um, steep skiing and ski mountaineering is that there's certain things that, that trigger flow states quite easily. Um, and, and, you know, flow states are it's, it's super rewarding. I think it's what every skier and every uh, mountain sports athlete is looking for, which is not, you know, necessarily this idea of adrenaline rush, which is, you know, too much adrenaline is just quite stressful and something's gone a bit wrong or you're a bit too stressed. But it's just enough stress to tip you into a flow state, which is when you're, you're absolutely in the zone. And I think that's what we're all looking for with, uh, with the sports we do. Um, which is the most rewarding experience. And there's certain things that trigger it and you kind of, you can learn to look for these triggers. And, and one thing that triggers it in the mountains is, is a very complex environment. 
where your, your brain's having to work super hard to process data at a subconscious level. And another is extreme risk where you're having to manage um, really, really serious risk. And those are two things that can tip you into a really good flow state. So, you know, there's different ways to get into it. I think that what I've, I've learned as well is that you can't keep, you know, I can't keep using risk all the time as, as a trigger just because it's obviously it's too risky. So you have to kind <laughs> of, you know, seek it in slightly different ways as well. Yeah. I can kind of imagine how that would apply to sometimes at work as well, um, but in a different level. At the end of the day, like to tunnel vision and push or to be in that frame of mind in the workplace, like you'll never be as successful as someone else who maybe really wants to be there because that's how their like attitude is going to be towards what they're doing. So it's like that's why it's important to like love your career or love the things you do to like allow you to enter into that kind of that mind frame of being like in the zone like that? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think if you, the only way to get to a really high level at something is to, is to have a genuine love for it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and you also talk about mental frameworks for justifying risk-taking on your website. What do these frameworks look like and to what level would you deem risk to be acceptable? Um, I mean, it, it changes over time and it changes, you know, it's, it's a really complex thing because it's your own perceptions versus reality are sometimes quite hard to disentangle. Um, and, and again, it's, you know, it changes a lot whether I'm guiding or whether I'm doing things for myself. But I think, you know, what, um, what you think might be risky and what is risky is hard to always assess accurately all the time. And I think the more experienced you are, you can come to closer and closer assessments of, you know, what is just something that's, that's maybe quite scary, but actually isn't risky. And that you try to think rationally about it and try to assess it. Whereas a lot of the times the riskiest situations can actually be ones that we aren't expecting and that we're not prepared for. Um, so, you know, most times when people are in accidents in the mountains, they're, they're, they don't realize they're in a, a very dangerous situation. They're caught uh, a bit unaware, especially often with, with avalanches. Um, but I think that, yeah, the more experienced you are, you, you can kind of gauge how much of risk you're exposing yourself to. And then, you know, one, one thing I would concept I've been thinking about more lately is just over, over time, over several years or a career or a 10, 20 year period, how much risk you're exposing yourself you know, to in the long term, and how to maybe you know make that more manageable to make sure that you know live live a long life rather than just keep pushing, pushing, pushing because it's not really sustainable. So you have to think, you know, if you make um, if you, if if you make if you go out skiing one day and you make a pretty aggressive decision, you're like, right, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to ski this line. You know, I'm going to just you know feeling good and confident. There's a lot of fresh snow, but I'll, I'll just you know take a bit of risk on it. Maybe that's okay for one day, but if you do that consistently over a long time, it's going to catch up with you. So you have to, even a slightly more conservative process of, of decision-making over a long time can reduce your aggregated risk by quite a lot. So that's kind of what I've been trying to, you know, weigh up, um, thinking about more more recently and how to, how to manage that. Definitely. And um, it's a very fine line to manage and a very intuitive and sort of personal process because you have to weigh up the now with the potential long-term repercussions and that ability to scope into the future and to plan ahead like that is something only the human species has the ability to do. Yeah, no, to- totally. For That's a good way to put it because it is also, it's for, there's no right or wrong of the risk you want to accept. It's just down to, I believe that, you know, everybody should be able to accept whatever risk they want. Um, and that's kind of down to the individual. Yeah. Well, we're starting to see the end of COVID now. Do you have big plans for this winter? Um, yeah. Well, I, I'd like to start thinking about um, a trip to a more exotic destination that I haven't been to, as well as I love skiing around Chamonix. And I always want to make the most out of that and try to just keep building my guiding business and keep having good adventures with, with clients. Um, 
but I'd definitely like to go away to somewhere I haven't been before. So I'm thinking you know, either the Caucasus, Georgia or Pakistan, somewhere I've really wanted to go for a while. Awesome. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, and what's on your sort of ski bucket list? Uh, yeah, Pakistan is a country that I've really wanted to go to for a while. I think it'd be a super cool place to visit culturally. You could ski there. Yeah, there's some amazing wow. skiing there. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Is there anything else on sort of your general adventure bucket list that you haven't ticked off yet? Yeah, there's, I'd like to, I've never been out to the Himalayas. So, you know, going to Pakistan or somewhere or sometime somewhere in Nepal for a climbing or skiing objective would be really cool. I guess I don't have, I have a few specific, um, so I go to go for rock climb trip in the US uh, most autumns. There's definitely a few climbs that I'd like to do around out West that would challenge me. I don't have a specific list. I think it just, I have to measure my motivation and, and, uh, just, you know, for a certain objective year by year, but I'd, I'd like to just keep having adventures and keep progressing with my climbing and skiing and tra- traveling to new places. Fantastic. Tom, is there anything you'd like to plug or give a shout out to before we wrap up? Um, no, just, uh, in terms of, yeah, my guiding work, I, I, I love it. I'm always looking for, for, um, you know, for new clients who, want to progress and, and want some coaching and some guiding. So um, don't hesitate to hit me up. It's, it's my passion and I, I love sharing it with, with people in the mountains. So that's, yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone who wants to do some off skiing around the Alps or, or further abroad. So what's your website? How can people find you? Uh, my website's www.tomgrant.guide and you can drop me an email or find me on Instagram um, at uh, Tom underscore Grant and then just shoot me a message. Fantastic. Well, you've been absolutely awesome to talk with. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Cool. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. Thinking of Peace is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.